crack that whip, give the pass the slip. This is screen watching. And on the podcast this week, we'll be talking about Indiana Jones. Why? Beats me. But my co-host insists there's a very good reason. Also on the podcast, we got reviews of In the Heights, the film that the critics loved but nobody went to see. Did Simon fall into line and love it too? I'm excited to find out. We'll also take a look at Bosch Season 7 from Amazon Prime Video, new movie Three Summers, Apple TV Plus's Tehran, and on Netflix, Katya and Feel Good. That's too much show, and yet we're also squeezing in an interview with Soprano star Joey Pantoliano, aka Joey Pants. This is screen watching. We're diving into all of that and more right after our snazzy little intro jingle. This is not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. This is Screen Watching and I'm Dan Barrett. Joining me as a man who, unlike Indiana Jones, did not name himself after the dog, it's Simon Foster. My name would be Kia Foster if I named myself after the dog. I've had Jolly, I've had Gretel, I've had uh, Rocky, and now I've got Kia. So that'd all be my dog names. How the hell did we get onto that? Hello, Dan Barrett. Good to talk to you, my friend. Hey, look, I'm excited. We have so many things that we're going to talk about. Before we get to any of that, we were having a conversation just before we started the microphone. Like... Good podcast practice would be that we've introduced ourselves and then we'd dive into the mm. podcast and not keep people waiting. Yeah. But I think this maybe speaks to the heart of what we do here on the podcast, which is that we review things. And so, mm-hmm. uh, like, the big thing this week is In the Heights. Like, there's no getting around that. Like, that is the sure. big thing we'd want to review. It's the thing that everyone... And I'm excited to talk about that. I'm excited to talk about a new musical film with all these different elements to it. But... Absolutely. There's a big reason we talk about it, which is that people are excited by it, or maybe not necessarily sure. audiences, but we'll talk about that afterwards. Uh, but, you know, it is the big thing, and so we're naturally excited. But you and I were discussing before we hit the record button... What happens for those films that come out that's just kind of generic Hollywood product? So things that are just kind of out in a cinema and that there's no real, mm. like, excitement for. And you and yeah. I will look at things that we may not be excited by something, but we know that there's an audience that are excited by it. And I don't know why I'm choosing this out of, like, the air, but for example, like a Trolls World Tour movie. Okay, like you and oh, right. I, okay, sure. probably not super excited by that, but one of us would probably go and check it out because we know that there's like cultural conversation around it. But what happens when there's the wife's hitman's bodyguard, if that's the name of the movie? Yeah. The hitman's bodyguard's wife. There we go. Now, now, I have always sort of held myself up as a film reviewer who tries to see everything all the time. And those of you who've listened to me here on the podcast and on other radio stations that I work on and will know that I, I go out of my way to catch every movie that's doing the rounds. In fact, I'm, today I'm reviewing some little films that are in small cinemas and, and talking about um, some other stuff as well that, that m- might be hard to track down. But I couldn't get to see Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife, and the more I thought about it, the less I cared that I didn't get to see Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife. God, just that title. <laughs> um, and, and as the date to, to record our podcast came closer, I'm just thinking, what am I possibly going to bring to a review about the Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife that is going to say anything other than either A, it's a pretty good action comedy, or B, it's a pretty bad action comedy. Now, there's not a, not a lot of other elements that I can add to a, a review of something like that. The same can be said of last week's Fast and the Furious. 
um, number nine. And with that review, I tried to go in a few different directions and tried to make it a broader thing about the whole series and that sort of stuff. And I just didn't have the energy or the interest to review Hitman's bodyguard's wife. So forgive me for not getting out to seeing it, but you kind of know what you're going in for when you see that, that movie like that. And there's not a whole lot that I'm going to be able to add to it. And we're not really dismissing it, saying it's going to be necessarily a bad movie. I'm sure that if I sat in no. the theatre... Like, I could possibly be excited by a couple of car chases. There might be a couple of funny clips. Sure. Like, you know, I suspect if I went and saw that, I'd probably have a reasonably okay time with it. But also, like, mm. is it necessarily worth going out of our way to go and talk about it when the audience, I don't think, are necessarily that excited by hearing a review for it either? Yeah, and I, that's exactly right. And with a lot of these films, and I don't want to put myself above any of the movies or, or any of the fans who watch it, but they really are just a slice of beetroot on a Big Mac. Um, the, uh, the, the Golden Arches will make a big deal and, a, and put a huge marketing push behind putting an extra bit of beetroot on their Big Mac. But in the end, that's all it is, a very slight variation on a very tired old product that's got a huge marketing push behind it. And that's kind of the feeling I'm getting from Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife. That's certainly the feeling I got from F9. Um, so... Forgive me, I will try and see as much as I can at the movies and get the reviews on here. But if I'm bored with a movie, I'm only going to give a boring review. So maybe we should move on. Now, the argument against what we were just talking about then is that maybe there's actually something really quite amazing happening in that film. And people sure. don't necessarily know it unless Simon Foster did the hard yards and went and saw it. But also, I would say that I don't think that's beyond me the case here. That's, that's very true. And I'm reviewing a lovely little film today called Three Summers, a little um, a foreign language film that's getting released in like 20 theatres. And I would rather talk that up and hopefully get a whole bunch of people to go along and see that for whatever influence I might have. And I'm not assuming I have any, but I would rather put a few words behind something like that than just sort of add to the white noise that's already out there for the latest big Hollywood sequel. Yeah, I mean, white noise probably really is the good sort of phrase for it there. Um, Three Summers, what language is it? Uh, it is a Brazilian French co-production in Portuguese. Okay. Start the queue. Start the queue here. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I want to hear about that in a short while. But before we get to that, In the Heights is definitely the big movie of the week. Let's take a listen. We're made of music. I am Usnavi, and you probably never heard my name. Reports of my fame are greatly exaggerated. Morning, Usnavi. Pan caliente, café con leche. On these blocks, you can't walk two steps without bumping into someone's big plan. I'm making moves, I'm making deals, but guess what? What? You still ain't got no skills. <laughs> in the Heights centers on a variety of Latina characters living in the neighborhood of Washington Heights on the northern tip of Manhattan. The central character is Uznavi, played by Anthony Ramos. He's a uh, sort of a 7-Eleven owner who looks after an aging Cuban lady next door, pines for Vanessa, the lovely Melissa Barrera, who's a gorgeous girl working in the neighbouring beauty salon. Everyone's gorgeous in this film. You'll hear me say beautiful a lot. Um, she dreams of winning the lottery and escaping to the shores of the Dominican Republic. Um, meanwhile, Nina, played by the beautiful Leslie Grace, is a childhood friend of Uznavi's, was everyone's sort of dream girl to go away to college and make it big and break away from the neighbourhood. But, and this is the message of the film, she is drawn back to the sense of family and drawn back to the community and back to the friendships that she 
um, established in the neighborhood all those years ago. Um, the music is spectacular. Lin Manuel Miranda, this was his first big stage hit before he did Hamilton. Um, he and his uh, songwriting team um, bring all their energy and all their great lyrics to, to the, the, the film adaptation, which is directed by John Chu. Um, what you get is a very old-fashioned musical, sort of certainly tarted up a bit with um, uh, hot new dancing, a very contemporary style of editing and filming that nods to the classic musicals of Hollywood yore without sort of um, borrowing too much from them, creating its own sort of look and feel that's very, very modern. Um, and the cast look great, act great, dance great. Does it deliver as a musical? Yes, it does. Does it go a bit long? Yes, it does. Um, is there a, a, some sort of lacking central drama that really drives the film forward? At times there is. There's a bit of padding in there, notably from Lin-Manuel Miranda as a character that uh, was created for the film, wasn't in the stage play. Um, but overall, it's a, it's a hardened heart who can't enjoy In the Heights. So everything about it I thought was just lovely and, and really enjoyable. Yeah, so I've actually seen this. I didn't care for it. Okay. <laughs> you didn't care for it at all? No, look, here, there's that hard heart. Here's the thing. So I don't really care for musicals at all. It's a pretty rare musical that will actually get me excited about it. What I was mm-hmm. particularly excited by, and look, I think that we're at a time where I was after a very big movie experience, and that's certainly what this movie promises. And like, it mm-hmm. looks great. It's a lush, like exciting theatrical experience. But again, it's also a musical and I just don't drive on musicals that much. So like already it was at a massive disadvantage. And so I only really reference this to point out that if you're someone who's maybe like me and musicals aren't really your genre, this film probably isn't necessarily going to win you over. But visually, like everything works about this as a movie. It's just maybe not for me. Yeah, I think that is a... I think that's part of the problem that the film has had in its in its uh, wide release. There's been a lot of talk about the fact that it's also available on HBO Max in the US at the same time. I, uh, that doesn't, the that apparently are, doesn't really mean anything because it's hanked on HBO Max as well. Exactly, yeah, as well. And, and, and there's been other films that have premiered there that have done big business. So um, I don't think it's that. I think... It's probably a bit more niche as a story than Hollywood wants to admit right now. I think there's huge swathes of America, um, much to their shame, that maybe don't want to watch uh, the story of Mexican hopes and dreams. I think there's still a dirty undercurrent in the US that um, points to this being an immigrant story, and that's still, for a lot of people in the flyover states, a a dirty word. Um, You know, I I actually think, sorry, I I think that you're probably close on that. I think it's maybe a little bit more complicated, though, where cultural and social politics have become so galvanizing in the US. And we suddenly feel it here a little bit in Australia as well. Like, it kind of feels like it's amping up here. But it just kind of feels Mm. like you're seeing it for the reason that it's a thing that you should go and see. And it's a thing that you should automatically like because it sort of meets the sort of social criteria of the moment. You're either with this or against it sort of an attitude. And so I think that there was maybe a lot of people that might have been interested in seeing a musical on the screen, but because everything's just so toxic at the moment, like maybe that just slightly off-putting. Yeah, look, there's there's been some interesting commentary about how this film is essentially the same uh, story and the same song and dance act that it was 25-odd years ago when when Lin-Manuel Miranda first debuted on, on Off-Broadway, actually, and then on Broadway. Um, but... It has taken on this, as you say, all these different layers of expectation and social burden and all these sort of things that come with 
an immigrant story in, in today's climate. So the film itself maybe hasn't timed its run, even after holding off its release until a, a post-COVID cinemas were open again. Maybe still the time isn't right for a film like this, which is a, a terrible shame, I think, um, because it tells a wonderfully uplifting and moving story that anyone of any race, creed or colour could, could watch and enjoy. So um, I think it will prove endlessly popular and, and, and have a be very endearing to those of us who, who, who love a good musical and who love a good musical story. Uh, maybe now just wasn't the right time for In the Heights, and I think that's a shame. I've got a bit of a dilemma at the moment, which is, and I don't know if I've talked to you about this or not, but uh, Mother's Day was back in, was it early May? And I bought my mum like a couple of tickets to go and see a movie. So like enough mm. to pay for like 60 bucks worth of movie tickets and some popcorn or whatever. So I got that for her, but then I was going through the listings trying to work out like what she could go and see. And suddenly I just realized there's a complete absence of just sort of middle of the road movies that my mum would actually be a bit excited by. I saw In the Heights and I thought, well, my mum loves musicals. Maybe that's something she'd go and see. But then I couldn't really recommend it to her because it dawned on me that it's not really a musical in a stricter sense of the word, but really it's sort of Lin-Manuel Miranda's, uh, it's not really even quite hip hop, but it's his spoken word music rather than necessarily a true musical in the sense that my mum would expect when she goes to the movies to see it. And I do wonder... Would she, would she, would she, would she buy into Hamilton? Is that something that she'd watch? No, nah, I don't think she'd buy into it at all. She's a very traditional viewer in a lot of ways, and I don't think Hamilton okay. would probably be of her interest. Like, Hamilton might get her over the line because you got the costuming of it all. But I, mm. like, even then, I think that's a bit of an ask. But I do think that in the Heights, like, you don't really have any sort of extravagance to it. And so... I just don't think it'd really get her in the seat. Like the music would disappoint her and then there was nothing else really to bring her in. And I do wonder if there's like a slight generational sort of gap there where maybe the people that would traditionally come out for a musical were put off by the fact that this felt so contemporary. There's all of those elements playing into it and there's a lot of discussion at the moment as to why this has opened with less box office than was expected considerably less too they were talking in the u.s about a 20 to 25 million dollar opening for this and it came in at just on 11 so that it's well down on what they were hoping it would do um the cinemas have, have largely all been open i think america's working at about 80 percent of cinemas back to full or near capacity so the, the the opportunity was there to see this film but it just hasn't connected he was talking about this as being a draw card for latino audiences but the thing that kind of got lost in it a little bit is that a Latino audience isn't necessarily like a large homogenous group. There's lots of different cultural variations and geographical sort of um, origins of people who define themselves as Latino, even though, you know, they sort of get lumped as this one group. But the movies that actually do well for quote unquote the Latino audience aren't necessarily things like In the Heights, quite obviously, because it just didn't perform very well. But they get really sort of crazy about like horror films. So The Conjuring movie, which had been out for, I think it's like week two of its release, like that actually drew a much bigger Latino audience than In the Heights did, even though that's perceived as being for a Latino audience. So it's just kind of interesting that, you know, there are these other genres that a community as widespread and diverse and divergent as that can be still kind of glom onto. One of the most controversial figures in American um, critical circles is a gentleman called Armand White. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah. He writes. He writes some extraordinarily um, diverse and contra diverse. Maybe not be the right word, but controversial <laughs> opinions of very popular movies. And he came down very hard 
on In the Heights for what he felt was just a perpetuating of that inner city Latino cliches. Um, and whereas In the Heights and Lin-Manuel Miranda would argue that what this film does is celebrate that sort of living and celebrate that community and that lifestyle and, and all the elements that are captured so beautifully in the film, Armin White argues that it's just a, a tightening of stereotypes without adding anything further to the argument. So there's both those elements at play and a whole lot of arguments in between, which I'm sort of glad is happening. Um, it can be written off as just a musical and a really good one in my opinion or not a very good one in your opinion, but I still think there's there's much to be discussed and thought of about this film, which is I think is more than just a song and dance act. Yeah. Look, I think it's a really interesting text and there's a lot of interesting conversations surrounding it. Let's go to Bosch. You love your Bosch. Season 7 is upon us. Detective Bosch, LAPD. You guys roll up, toss a firebomb. Mama! Nobody saw who these guys were. Five murders. Somebody gave them marching orders. That neighborhood, that block, Gladys Rodriguez. Woman. That's unusual. Yeah, she's an unusual woman. Looks like a banker. Kind of a female stringer bell. I don't like the sound of that. One of the great frustrations I have with US network TV is how terrible much of it is. It's formulaic, it lacks an adventure, and it has almost zero texture anymore. Every scene's usually edited to completely remove the show of any pretense that we're watching human beings relate to one another. But it wasn't always like this. Sure, there's always been bad examples of TV. But US broadcast through the late 80s and, and into the 90s had some outstanding series on broadcast TV. We've discussed this a little bit on the podcast in recent weeks, but we're talking about shows like ER, NYPD Blue, Homicide, Chicago Hope, Murder One, Twin Peaks, Northern Exposure, The X-Files, Picket Fences, Millennium, The West Wing, etc., etc., etc. These are all tremendously smart, high-quality TV dramas. Now, Lost in the move towards cable drama and streaming has been the staple of TV genres that are baked into the DNA of television. And these are genres that the shows I just mentioned are very much based on. I'm talking about cop shows, I'm talking about hospital doctor dramas, I'm talking about family relationship series. You knew what you were in for every week, but there are also genres that the very best of them found ways to tell fresh stories and push the envelope when needed. And that's why Amazon Prime drama Bosch is such a pleasure to watch. It isn't a throwback to the TV of the 90s, but in a way that TV dramas were heightened to a new maturity in the 80s, and that sophistication continued on into the 90s, this kind of feels like where the US network drama should be if those trends had continued. Now, I'm not saying that Bosch is necessarily a better drama than ER or NYPD Blue, but this is certainly a peer. Now, if you don't know Bosch, the show stars Titus Welliver as Harry Bosch. He's an LA detective who, in the past worked as an advisor on a TV cop show, which funded a very cool-looking house in the Hollywood Hills. It means that when you're watching the show, every time you see Bosch go home to review some case files, he's always got some jazz playing in the background with some stunning views of Los Angeles at night surrounding every shot. The character of Bosch, he's a stern and occasionally prickly detective. As a child, he was brought up by a single mother who worked as a prostitute. She was murdered, and Bosch has been working her case ever since. It's a very dark, murky background for a TV hero. And he's complicated even further in the very first episode, where he may have shot a perp in a shooting, which wasn't entirely above board. Now, every season of the show has Bosch telling a brand new Bosch story. It's based on various books from a very long-running literary franchise. And it means that at the end of every season, stories wrap up in a very satisfying manner. And all of that brings us to season seven of the show. Uh, this is a season that starts with an arson attack on a building, and it leaves a number of innocents dead. 
Now, if you've watched the first six seasons of the show, you'll want to make sure that you don't miss out on this one because it's the last season of the series. Bosch will be back next year on a spin-off show that will pair him up more regularly with Mimi Rogers, who plays a lawyer on the show. But for now, just know that Bosch continues to be a good quality, committed cop drama. I'll happily agree the show probably isn't quite as strong as it had been in the earliest seasons of the show, but the show continues to deliver the goods and it remains one of TV's best, most reliable dramas. Still haven't checked it out. I've never seen an episode of Bosch. Your passion for it and in your ongoing commitment to, to making us aware of just how good Bosch is has got me intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I point out that Dan has spoken at length about Bosch in previous episodes and I'm very excited to say that I'm almost won over by the opportunity to watch more Bosch. Look, and the thing is, I'm not necessarily saying that it's going to be the greatest show on TV. It's not a revelatory show, but much like all those other shows I was talking about, it just occupies like a space of just constant, continual quality, and you know you're not going to be let down by a season of Bosch. And to date, at seven seasons in, I've never been let down by any of them. Yes, Bosch's daughter maybe features a little bit too heavily in the most recent seasons. Yes, she's a terrible actress, but the rest of the show is so so reliable that I'm more than willing to look past Compelling it. leading man. Titus Welliver, I'll give you that. Um, oh, he's incredible. Compelling leading man. Great, great, great cast led by him. So check out Bosch. I know you said it during your review there. Where do we see Bosch? Uh, so it is a long-running staple yeah. on Amazon Prime Video. And yeah, check it out there. Uh, and also, SBS tends to play it about a year or two after the season's run. So people have probably watched it over there. Uh, just to spite Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson, I decided to not see, as we cleared up earlier, the hitman's bodyguard's wife. And instead, I went and saw a little film called Three Summers. Unfolding over the course of three consecutive summers, 2015 through to 2017, the film follows Maida, played by the wonderful Regina Casa. Um, she's a 50-something caretaker for a whole series of, of beachside condos owned by the very wealthy of Rio de Janeiro. Um, she's trying to invest in a roadside snack kiosk and is hoping that her employer will help her out with that, which he does. Um, and all the while, she's tending to every need of her employers, um, in addition to um, looking after their family and looking after their home. She is very much invested in their lives at her personal expense. Um, as the summers progress, we understand that this wealthy family is in fact mixed up in some of the uh, graft and corruption that was rife through Rio de Janeiro through this period. This was a time that um, uh, ultimately led to a whole series of arrests uh, because of the, the corrupt nature of, of uh, big business in the region. Um, and as the film moves forwards, we see just how she maintains her very sort of slim grip on her dreams and her hopes um, all the while. Uh, leaping at every opportunity can to, to make a name for herself and to just to get ahead a little bit in life. Um, this film is centred by this extraordinary actress, Regina Casa. Obviously, I'd never seen her before. As I mentioned previously, this is a Brazilian-French co-production, all shot in Portuguese, uh, by the wonderful uh, director Sandra Cogut. She captures these people's lives just beautifully. Um, as the film progresses, they're left alone in this giant mansion. Um, uh, uh, Maida and the other staff members of the house are left to look after not only the house but the aging grandfather the aging sort of patriarch of the, the wealthy but crooked family um, and what you have is this wonderful story of 
you know, sort of brought together by people with honor and with hopes and with dreams, all being exploited and being unable and being sort of kept in their place by the greedy and the corrupt. So um, there's bigger sort of sim- symbolism to this movie, but there's also really intense personal stories and a wonderful central performance, which I've said before, but I'll say again by Regina Casse. It's not in a lot of cinemas, but if you get a chance to see Three Summers, either during its theatrical run or as it heads out across the, the small screen, please do. It's a, it's a real find for me, and I was able to watch this today just on the laptop here where they sent me a link, and um, it totally won me over. I was charmed by both her performance and this and this really delightful, really moving film. Look, Three Summers is such a low-key release that I just tried doing a Google search for it. And instead, a 2017 Ben Elton movie, Three Summers, pretty much dominates the Google. Do not be confused. Three Summers featuring Ben Elton was my worst movie of whatever year it came out. I hated that film with a passion. If you do get confused and start watching that, as soon as you see Ben Elton run a mile, it's a terrible film. This is another Three Summers um, and is in some uh, uh, sort of limited release around Australia. I want to talk to you about an Apple TV series called Tehran. You have 47 minutes. Stay in communication with me. Do what you have to do. I will be home by tomorrow afternoon. Tehran is a thriller that first aired on Khan 11 in Israel, but is streamed internationally by way of Apple TV. I mentioned this to point out that a thriller from Israel about the goings-on in Iran, considering all the Israel-Palestine issues, is a bold TV production. I need to be upfront here and point out that I don't feel anywhere near educated enough about this political tension. Every couple of years, I find myself reading explainer articles about the political situation there and only partially understanding it. So when I come to this show, I do it feeling like there's elements of it that are going right over my head. Now, the show itself is not complicated to follow, but it does feel that a better grasp of the tension in the region would have served me well. In the first episode, there are two seemingly unconnected plots that smash together right by the end of the first hour. We're introduced to two young people on a plane. They're flying to India for a holiday, but their plane's diverted to Iran where they need to switch planes. The problem is, is that they're from Israel, and as soon as their passports are viewed in the Tehran airport, they're going to find themselves unwanted visitors in a very hostile land. What these two don't know is that the plane was deliberately grounded by Mossad agents who were trying to get one of their own hackers on the ground in Iran. What nobody from Mossad expected, however, was that one of the Israeli wannabe tourists would recognize the hacker from the time that they'd both spent in the army. Now, as I said, I don't have a complete understanding of exactly what's going on at all times, but I still found the show to be incredibly absorbing and legitimately thrilling. Tehran, it's been available to stream since September last year, but it was a very under-the-radar release. Not quite three summers under the radar, but certainly under the radar. And you'd be well advised to give this one a look. I've only seen the first episode, but I feel extremely confident suggesting that it may be the best show that none of us have been watching. That's a good wrap. Now, am I right in thinking this was the series that Glenn Close has just hooked up to? She's been signed on? This is exactly it, and this is exactly why I watched the show as well. So Glenn Close will be joining the show from season two onwards. And it reminded me that there's this show called Tehran, which I remember the one to two reviews that I stumbled across when it launched were fairly positive. And I thought, well, I should maybe actually give this a look. And I'm very glad that I did because I'm going to blitz through this quite heavily over the weekend. And I'm there for Glenn Close when she joins season two. We've been to Brazil. We've been to Tehran. Now let's go to Iceland for the new Netflix series (laughs) Cutler. How's it possible she's alive? Dad, how come you're all acting weird? You appeared after having been missing for a year. I've just been here. 
something going on about the glacier this is the latest project from acclaimed uh, icelandic writer director baltazar cormicu you probably know the name from the english-speaking movie everest from 2015 that starred jake gillenhall and kira knightley and a whole bunch of other great actors um he is a man who uh, does a lot of work in his home country of iceland and with cutler he has uh, gone back to his tv roots he set this whole story in the icelandic town of Vic, which is located on the southern coast of the country, right in the shadow of the volcano Katla, which is where they get the title from. Um, the region in the series has been experiencing a, a strange year of subglacial volcanic activity, but Katla's eruptions haven't just been geologically disruptive. Something ancient has been resting in the glacier, and it appears it's now been released. There's a, a, a compelling moment in the first series after he's introduced, in the first episode, I should say, after he's introduced a few of the characters where out of the the um, ash and the dust and the ice of the wasteland that is the township of Vic walks a naked woman head to toe covered in black soot in black ash um, who we learn very quickly is the young sister of a couple of the lead characters we've met but she's been missing for a year this all happens in the first episode of the series um, it delves very deeply into Icelandic folklore but backs it up with some pretty stern scientific reasoning as well. So what you have here is immediately something that reminds you of um, the X-Files or Stranger Things or uh, this small town, tightly knit um, community with its own series of secrets, uh, all of a sudden finding that the otherworldly is is sort of imposing itself upon their small town existence. Um, I'm four episodes into an eight-episode run. I've binged those four. Very hard to turn this series off. It is really compelling in that moody, um, dark, Icelandic kind of way of, of telling stories that they do so well in their in their TV and their movies. This is the first Icelandic Netflix series backed by the streamers, so it's another example of um, the, the, the streaming giant going into international territories and turning out pretty impressive product if um, they support local industries that like the way they've done with with Cutler um, and allow this kind of freedom to a, a quality storyteller like Balthazar Cormacue then um, there's hope for TV industries around the world so well done Netflix and well done to Iceland for churning out a really compelling supernaturally tinged mystery show called Cutler yeah look I'm very keen to check this one out also I think I may have interviewed Balthazar before uh, so he did a show that SBS ran here called Track. Yes, he did. And I think I might have done a phone interview with him. Yeah, he's got a few of the cast members, and I'm not going to try and say their names because there's a whole lot of... I'm not going to try and say their names. But um, yes, and, and there's a few cast members from Trapped in this, as I, I recognise as part of my research. Colour me jealous, Simon, but you got to talk to Joey Pants. Yes, the great Joe Pantoliano. He's made a career out of stealing scenes... Stealing whole movies, quite frankly, with his work in films like Risky Business, Running Scared, Midnight Run, Bad Boys, The Matrix, Memento. He won an Emmy, I believe, for The Sopranos. In cinemas now is a movie called From the Vine. We reviewed it uh, wholeheartedly last week. It's a very warm-hearted story of one man's quest to save his ancestral Italian vineyard. Um, and it gives one of Hollywood's greatest ever character actors a full movie in which to shine. 
I spoke to fellow small dog owner Joe, and you'll hear the small dogs in the background, <laughs> about the, the general sweetness of his new film, which we don't see a lot from him, why legacy and heritage are more important than ever. And he gives a wonderful memory about working with the great Anne Ramsey and Robert Davey in The Goonies. Here, enjoy this chat. I'm very excited that From the Vine is going to be shown in Australia. Uh, congratulations on this very sweet film, Joe, which I know you came to quite late in, in pre-production. Were you able to form a, a backstory for Marco right off the page? Was he a man you recognised? Yeah. You know, when, when I agreed to do the film and didn't have much time, I think we had like two weeks uh, before we started. And, uh, and I told Sean Cristera, uh, our director, that because of the lack of time, I was going to make it a documentary because there was a lot of, a lot of behavior uh, and having gone through a lot of what Marco goes through in my own life, I thought there was a lot of similarities there that I could um, use my, my own history um, in, in the movie and, and, and having a sense of, sense of humor about it. Well, that's, that leads straight into my next question. As a, as a first-generation Italian-American, did you see in Marco any similarities regarding your connection to, to Italy, to the homeland? Well, I'm actually second generation. Oh, oh sorry, second generation. Uh, so, so uh, you know, I always kid, I always describe myself as an American of Italian descent. Sure. Um, and, uh, and what was interesting is, is that the, the movie is based on a book, uh, Finding Marco. Uh, Ken Conchera uh, wrote. He's also the executive producer on this. Uh, so it, it was about a guy who immigrated to Canada when he's 10 years old and then comes back. Uh, well, I, uh, you know, I'm from I'm from New York uh, area, and I thought, having spent a lot of time in Canada, that the really interesting thing about Canada is that they welcome your history and your heritage. Uh, they encourage you to maintain your language. So when you're in, in the big cities in Canada, you have all these different uh, dialects going on. And uh, if you're in the Italian section or the Chinese section or the Greek section or the Croatian section, those languages, they live on. But in America, you're discouraged. And uh, you're, can you hear my dogs? <laughs> I can, and as a small dog owner myself, I, I love little dogs, so that's fine. Yeah, well, I, I'm a small dog owner, but I have five of them. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they are, they, I've got these on and I can hear them. They're enjoying, so, the, they're enjoying the beautiful summer weather outside, I can see. Actually, it's raining all day. It just, oh, it just, uh, it just popped out, it's fantastic. Nice. Um, but, but I was, uh, as I was saying, the idea of, uh, of being ridiculed in America for your language or your accents um, is uh, something that I wanted to convey in, in, in this movie. And, and they agreed uh, that, that we would make him somebody who grew up in New York and then fell in love um, and uh, wound up immigrating to Canada as a young boy. As a, young, as a young man, you 
you came off shooting from the vine. And if I understand it, Bobby Maresco's play drift didn't happen because of COVID, but that was also a, a play that sort of examines the, the immigration experience, albeit from a, a darker perspective. These themes of, of heritage and, and legacy, um, they seem particularly important to you right now, or is this more coincidental? To me, it's very important because of what's happening in my country. Um, you know, it's, a, it's more of an, a, a, an autocracy. Uh, you know, America in a lot of ways is starting to look more and more like Russia, uh, you know, with the news of, of, uh, of the Justice Department uh, investigating and tapping phone lines of, of, of media and, and congressmen. Um, you know, so it's a, like a minority rule. So uh, it's anti-democratic and democracy is, 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 is starting to turn into this minority rule billionaire uh, club that is controlled by, you know, 40 or 50 Americans. And uh, it's, it's coming to a head. So what I love about From the Vine is that this is a guy that goes, is lost. He's trying to find himself and, 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 and losing everything uh, for, the, for the sake of being um, rich and, um, you know, a, a big time um, lawyer who, who runs an automobile company mm. uh, and then kind of hits the wall and starts seeing things and hearing things. And uh, he's, he's losing his mind. Um, and, and his wife and daughter uh, come to bail, them, bail themselves out, you know, to throw a net over him before he goes through the family jewels uh, with this lame brain idea that he has about growing wine, having no experience in doing so. I think it's you know, they find out. Sorry, go ahead. So that, that, that they find out the simple, the simpler things in life really are what matter. Yeah, and I think most importantly, this isn't a selfish crusade for Marco. It's not a midlife crisis, as he says in the film. It's it's an act of an act of honor. Um, there's a goodness about Marco that's not that common in your film and TV characters. Was it nice playing it a bit sweeter? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh... You know, it, 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 it's more like who I am. People, people, when people meet me, I mean, fans meet me. They they think that I'm the characters that I play, and uh, and and you know. So this was uh, this afforded me the ability to really show uh, my foibles and uh, the chinks in my own armor that represent a lot of what Marco was going through. And I think a lot of people uh, my age go through. Um, after all those years stealing scenes from your co-stars, you're throwing a challenge by Marco Leonardi, who's terrific as Luca. Tell us something about shooting in Acerenza and, and working with the Italian casting crew. Well, he, you know, Marco is just beautiful and brilliant and simpatico. And, and you know, I, I just love working with him. And, and uh, there, you know, there, there were three people that were legit Italian actors in that picture. The rest were Canadian and, uh, and all of the townspeople 
were locals. So it was like being in a Visconti movie. Uh, that would be, that's a dream. That would be wonderful. Yeah, well, it was. I mean, Sean, Sean did a great job. It was, uh, it, was, uh, it was just romantic and beautiful. And, and I, I was just, it was, it was a magical, whimsical, like the movie itself. I guess the spirit of this movie had its own idea, the kind of movie it wanted to make, and we just got out of its way. Joe, I want to spend a moment talking about your No Kidding Me Too charity. It's a cause that's significant to me and I know means a great deal to you. Um, what are its aims and, and how is the organisation achieving them? Just to encourage people, uh, you know, to encourage those who struggle with emotional distress and disease, uh, to let them know that it's... It, it, it's not just them, most everyone is going through something at some point and, uh, and that they shouldn't, they shouldn't be afraid to ask for help, to be able to become more productive uh, members of society, that, that the idea is to talk about your feelings and uh, in talking about what you're going through, you discover that a lot of people feel just like you. Uh, my daughter, Daniela, the, my middle daughter, I have three daughters and my son, Marco. Um, but we started a podcast called No Kidding Me Too that we're doing here in the States. And it's, it's been terrific because we, we're reaching out to, um, you know, high profile celebrities talking about their lives and how they cope with um, their, the momentary disease, distress, that life, th life throws at you. And, and so, um, you know, and, and, and I think you can see the documentary we made, No Kidding Me Too, in Australia also, mm. on Amazon or Google. We'll definitely be checking it out. It's a wonderful cause. And, and, and I, I wanna thank you for, for um, bringing it to the, to the fore, to making it more apparent to everyone. Um, if, you'll in grant me, if you'll indulge me a couple of time machine moments, Joe, um, First of all, I'd go back to 2003 and watch you opposite Rosie Perez in Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune. Why was your Broadway leading man debut so long coming? Well, you know, I, I couldn't get a job. <laughs> <laughs> I asked that question you know, I, quite a bit and that's generally the answer I get. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was the kind of, uh, you know, overnight success that took about 30 years. Uh, <laughs> But wonderful. But I was glad. I was glad for the opportunity. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, and and indulge me another time machine moment. Uh, being on set when you and Robert Darby found that perfect chemistry with Her Majesty Anne Ramsey. Give me a favorite memory of your time with her. Oh, my favorite time is is the fights, the real fights that we had. You know, I, I've come to the conclusion that all movies are documentaries. You know, it's like we're all subjecting our own life models, depending on who wrote it, who produces it, who directs it, you know, how, how these ideas are boiled up and, and they come out. But uh, I think that uh, that what Dick Donner and Steven Spielberg liked is, is the banter between Robert and I, and they would just put, see what we did offstage and put it on in front of a camera. Um, 
but we we had we had gone out. Uh, there were two units. There was the Spielberg unit, second unit, and then there was the first unit with Davi. Uh, I mean, with Dick Donner and Davi and I and Annie went had gone sightseeing uh, around Astoria, Oregon, and I was convinced. Uh, that we weren't going to work that day because I didn't see the second unit call sheet. I only saw the first unit call sheet, and we were on hold. And uh, and I and because of that, when they finally did call call us, by the time we got back, <laughs> we they had lost the light, and we had you know we we had held them up, and uh, and Davi and I were arguing all the way back uh, on our way to the set. He got pulled over by a cop. Uh, for speeding, and I told the cop to give him the ticket because he was pulling the, the the Warner Brothers card, and Ramsey, you know, Annie was screaming at us in front. All this was going on in front of the cop. It was hysterical. Uh, they sound like wonderful memories. I, gee, nearly nearly fifty years of memories for you in the industry, isn't it? It's seventy. It is. It is. Roadhouse, it's... I think, was the first movie I've done the research. So it's um it's an extraordinary career. Um, you're a proud grandfather. One of the suddenly one of the grandkids starts gravitating towards the art and craft of acting, imagining a career like their nonna. With fifty years under your belt, what are the first words of advice you give them? Are you fucking crazy? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wanted to be on camera. Oh yeah, I, you know, I, I'll tell that to anybody who'll listen. You know, I, I, I want him to be. Uh, on camera, um, you know, talking heads, opinion heads. That, you know, th that's where the real money is now. Sure. <laughs> uh, look, it's been just such a joy talking to you. I'm, um, I've been a huge fan. I fought hard to get this interview, and, and I want to thank the, the team down here in Australia for setting up. From the Vine is in Australian cinemas from June 17. It's been an absolute joy talking to you, Joe Pantoliano. Thank you for joining us on Screen Watching. Thank you. Thank you so much. Are you in a, are you in Sydney or I am, yeah. I'm in Sydney. Yeah, we're based in Sydney. Uh, you were down here for Matrix, weren't you? That was your time in yes. Australia. Yeah. Yes, I, I yeah, and that was what, two thousand ninety-eight. It was nineteen ninety-eight. Yeah. Um, I had a great time. I I had a great time. You know, uh, Rachel Ward, Brian Brown, they adopted me and introduced me to all their friends. I got oh, to wow. meet all the great Australian people and uh, you know the, the Sydney folks and I my, my wife and kids we had a blast uh, it's, it, it's um I was very fortunate just a, a, a few weeks back to spend the whole day with Brian Brown Bruce Beresford Jack Thompson recording um audio commentary for Breaker Moran they're releasing a, a, a remix of oh, that oh wow that's fantastic so that yeah I met though you know everybody you mentioned I I met through Brian Brian and Rachel <laughs> wonderful you know. time all right, mate. Listen, thank you so much. I'll let you get back to your, your brief sort of sunny day there and, um, and look after those dogs. Thank, take care. Okay, cheers. Look, we mentioned this in the intro and I don't really understand what we're doing here, but for some reason we're talking about Indiana Jones. Yes, we are. The 4K disc release, I'm still a fan of physical media, you know that, um, of all four Indiana Jones films was released this week. Also, number five is currently shooting in the UK. I think as we record this has been reports that Mr. Ford has been injured on set. He'll get better. Um, I started to ponder, what are my five greatest moments from the Indiana Jones franchise, which led to the screen-watching middle bit? Da -da 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 -da. Uh, <laughs> so... 
for me, now I've got to be quite upfront about this. The first movie is um, one of the sort of seminal movies of my movie going experience. I could fill this five greatest moments segment with all bits just from the first movie, but I am going to spread it out a bit across the uh, the four movies. There's nothing from Crystal Skull in there. Don't worry about that. But um, I'm going to count oh down the five. And please join in. Please weigh in. Dan out there, those of us listening in, give us a shout out on Facebook and maybe weigh in with your favorite moments. Number five of the five favorite moments from the Indiana Jones franchise, the Temple of... Oh, so this yeah, is a we're countdown. countdown. Very exciting. Okay. Number five, I'm going to go with the Temple of Doom opening, Kate Capshaw's Anything Goes Song and Dance Act. There's me and my musicals again. And Indy's quest for the antidote. He's been poisoned in his dealings with a uh, an evil uh, triad criminal and um, has been poisoned, and he's got to try and catch the antidote as it bounces around the dance floor. It is a terrific bit of Spielbergian intercutting. And let's face it, as great as Spielberg is, these movies are really the, the genius of, of editors working overtime to, to, to piece it all together. Um, so that Temple of Dune... Temple of Dune... So the Temple of Doom opening sequence is, is number five on my list. Yeah, look, I think it's a really visually spectacular opening sequence. I'm not a big fan of that movie overall, but I do love that opening. And the thing to probably note there is that it's very heavily inspired by the Busby Berkeley musical numbers uh, from, you know, the yesteryear of cinema. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how much he's developed his love of, of the musical form um, since he filmed this, because coming up uh, December this year is his version of West Side Story, so he's going all in on the musicals um, finally. So uh, let's see how he goes. Number four in my favourite moments from the Indiana Jones franchise. I call this the Origins of Indy. This is the opening sequence from the uh, third film, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, featured River Phoenix as a teenage Indy. Um, and this whole sequence has this wonderful sense of humour which explains how he gets his chin scar, which Harrison Ford is famous for, how he developed his fear of snakes, and towards the end of this sequence you get to see the real Indiana. There's a very quick cutaway shot of uh, George Lucas's dog, which is where they got the name Indiana from. So um, it's a very... I'll, I'll never forget when I saw this in the cinema. Um, it was just a gleeful movie-watching experience. The audience responded with cheers. Um, and although it's only a short sequence, it shows what a great adult star River Phoenix may have become because he was terrific in the part as well. Uh, obviously, you mean as an adult and not an yeah. adult star. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I mean. Although, no, not that at all. Um, <laughs> so number three, let's get to number three. Indy reunites with Marion in Nepal. Now, this is the, sequ this is the sequence in the, the first film where Indy travels by map to Marion's bar in high in the Himalayas. Um, they reunite. They banter very hard because of the history they've got together. And then they face off against Tot. Now, Tot uh, has a great moment later in the film, and all you have to say is coat hanger, and any fan of the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark will know that scene. But in this one, he's got his henchmen with him, the uh, place is burning down, the medallion is getting hot in the fire, and Tot grabs the medallion and burns the symbol into his hand. I hope this isn't a spoiler for anyone, you probably should have seen the film by now, but... Um, I, th I think we're exactly. okay on that And then it turns into this great um, uh, gun battle and another extraordinary part of the production team of the sound effects. If I was lucky enough to watch this sequence on the 4K um, disc the other day and the, the gun battles and the gun, just sounds so meaty and, and so um, rich that it was, it's, it's, it's a joy to behold. So that's when Indy reunites with Marion in Nepal at number three. 
Number, okay, two, number two, the penitent man shall pass. This is in The Last Crusade. Indy has to navigate the traps, both physical and mental, ahead of finding the Holy Grail. Um, his father, uh, played by the wonderful Sean Connery, um, has been injured and has to keep reminding him quietly and uh, almost spiritually that the penitent man shall pass, which is where he has to kneel and not get decapitated by a giant um, trap. So it, I, this was a, um, at this point it was showing that Spielberg was maturing into more than just a comic book filmmaker and that the, he was actually crafting these scenes really beautifully and he had a great handle of an aging star in Harrison Ford and the legend that is Sean Connery. So this is one of my favourite favorite sequences. From a film that sort of ebbs and flows in quality, I wasn't a huge fan immediately of Last Crusade, but I've grown to love it more over the years. Look, I have to say, I was a little sceptical of the segment when you first announced it, but now that I think about it, you have chosen wisely. <laughs> nice, one for the fans there. And number one moment, favourite moment from the Indiana Jones franchise now, I'm going to cop a lot of flack because I haven't chosen the, just the, literally the opening sequence of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I have chosen the Nazi <laughs> flying wing fight with Marion trapped in the cockpit. Indy fights this big Nazi as a petrol tank truck, as a petrol truck burns nearby. Now, this giant Nazi was played by... Play, I'm getting ahead of myself. The giant Nazi mechanic was played by a gentleman named Pat Roach, a six-foot-five wrestler from England, who became a series regular, and I didn't know this until this afternoon. He was the thuggy guard who fell in the rock crusher in Temple of Doom, and he played a Gestapo officer in The Last Crusade. Now, unfortunately, he died quite young, age 67, back in 2004, but the punch-up that he has with Indy as the propeller um, of the uh, the Nazi flying wing is uh, circling around them is just one of the great bits of, of movie making of stunt work as well. Um, it's one of the most convincing fights you'll see on screen for a long time, and it still is. Uh, and it, it at that point in the film, it just just when you think that movie can't sort of rev up a notch any further, it does with this fight. So I'm putting it down as my my favourite Indiana Jones moment. Now, something I learned about that sequence the other day is apparently the pilot in the plane as the fight sequence is taking place is Frank Marshall. Oh, okay. Yes, I can see that. Yeah. Like I said, I only watched this the other day, so I can recall that the look on his face. I've met Frank Marshall at the Cannes Film Festival, and um, yes, look oh, at me look dropping at names. Cannes, this, Frank Marshall, <laughs> that. Um, in fact, the more you get into the the, the minutiae of, of that first film... Um, the uh, the German officer that Indy has a fight with in the truck during the famous truck sequence, which is another great moment, of course, um, is Glenn Leonard, the stunt coordinator for the film. So he actually fights off. And I don't want to go through anything about Indiana Jones without mentioning the Indiana Jones uh, women, most notably Karen Allen, who's just wonderful in the first film. You forget what such a great foil she was for all the madness going on around her, but also Kate Capshaw, also Alison Doody, once again, not so much Kate Blanchett in the uh, the final film. Everything about that seemed to just be off kilter a little bit. But um, Karen Allen, who was just a darling in the movie, is is just a joy to watch. Yeah, one of the good things about COVID, I mean, there were a few good things that happened, but one of them was just that there was a whole bunch of retro movies playing in cinemas in Australia. And every week they were dropping one of the Indiana Jones films for a couple of weeks there. So not too long ago, I got to see the Raiders of the Lost Ark mm. on the big screen. We gave Temple of Doom a bit of a miss, likewise with the Crystal Skull. But we saw that and we also saw The Last Crusade up on the big screen. And like both of them were just like great big screen experiences. I will say that Last Crusade 
didn't really quite hold up as much as it did in my mind. Like there's definitely some slow patches throughout that film, but a couple of sequences in that film, which when it works, it really works remarkably well. And a lot of it, the sort of interplay with um, Harrison Forge, uh, Sean Connery and Alison Doody, like particularly in the opening third of the film, as you start to realize that suddenly it's like father, like son, that the father had had a relationship with Alison Doody as well as Indiana Jones now sort of stumbling into the situation. And all that plays off each other remarkably well. And there's just such a a great bond that immediately you feel from the get-go, partly because you do see these characters playing off each other with elements of jealousy as well as uh, a little bit of um, sexual interplay. uh, Spielberg and his team had copped a lot of flack for the darkness of Temple of Doom. Um, And I mean that in many different ways. It's not a comfortable film to watch in hindsight now. Um, But it was quite a violent uh, sequel with lots of child actors involved in some very dark scenes. Um, so with temp- with the Last Crusade, he really lightened things up, and I think um, that made for a much more enjoyable film. And yeah, the chemistry between Connery and Ford, but also Alison Duty, who didn't really go on to much. I've tried to track her down and not been able to see her do much work at all. But um, yeah, it was it's it's a it's a real fun film. Um, but we, we do have to mention Crystal Skull. Are we, are we all of the agreement that this was uh, a folly? Look, I'm concerned that there's going to be people out there who suddenly just come yeah. to its defense because they want to be sort of counter to common sense and everything that's decent <laughs> about the world. But, you know, let's just ignore those people. But if we are going to talk about Crystal Skull, the only thing I want to reference is that when Harrison Ford appeared in Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, he was older than Sean Connery was in The Last Crusade. Anyway, that's my little rant and rave about all things Indiana Jones. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's have a look at the week ahead. Okay, Simon, I don't want to lie to people by saying that it's a big week ahead for movies, but here we are. We're going to talk about a couple of the new returning... A couple of the new movies, a couple of the returning TV shows, and everything that falls in between. Let's start with Hitman, which is something appearing on Stan from June 25. Simon, what do we know about this? We know that this stars two of England's most popular comedians, Sue Perkins and Mel Gedroich. Um, they play two friends who somehow find themselves in a career in contract killing. Um, and then obviously not your typical killers for hire. They're more these middle-class housewife type of ladies. Um, they have a ball doing what they do, and we have a ball watching them doing what they do. So uh, they are two very funny ladies, and Hitman is on stand from June 25. Sorry, you said we have a ball. Have you actually seen this? Yes, yeah, yeah. I've seen a couple of the episodes. Very sweet, very funny. I don't know. I never quite got into it. Also debuting Uh, on Stan this week, we've got Angel of Death, which is a Polish... Is it a series or a movie, Simon? It is a series. This tells the story of a young girl's ritualistic murder. It's being investigated by two career cops working for very different divisions. Now, all evidence points to a lecturer on religious studies, a man who favours a young, intelligent student who does not know that her lecturer may hide a dark secret. Angel of Death, and I won't try to say its Polish name either because it's all sorts of letters I don't recognise, but um, by all accounts, this is uh, a bit of quality television as well. Yeah, how many Zs are in that name is what I'd like to I know. I know, that's a lot of Zs. I don't know what they're doing over there. Hey, look, there's some movies that are debuting this week. So probably the biggest of the lot is Luca, which is the new Pixar film. And the premise of this one has it on the Italian Riviera. And it's an unlikely but strong friendship that grows between a human being and a sea monster disguised as a human. It sounds very sort of traditional Pixar fare. Uh, the reviews I've heard for it, it seem a little bit sort of mixed. Uh, people are favorable, but it's not quite A-grade Pixar. 
Yeah, I've heard it's used very, very young without the more grown-up elements that make Pixar movies the classics that they are. But um, certainly one for the kids to enjoy. At the opposite end of the spectrum, still underwater, but a very different underwater, is Super Deep. This is on the horror streaming platform Shudder, a Russian film in which a small research team wants to find out what secret is held in the world's deepest borehole. First time I've ever said that word. What have they found... What they have found turned out to be the greatest threat to mankind. This is a terrific creature feature, a good old-fashioned monster movie. Imagine aliens, but at 40,000 fathoms underwater. Um, Don't worry about it being a subtitled Russian film. A, the subtitles just whip by, um, and all the action is uh, the kind of monster stuff that you'd want to see. It's called Super Deep, and it's on the Shutter platform right now. Yeah, what is the Russian translation for borehole? I dare you to Google that. <laughs> Not with the safe search off. <laughs> and what do you know about fatherhood? This was quite a big deal. Kevin Hart, uh, Alfred Woodard, um, big names, and this is a, a fairly sweet sort of movie, but it's come to Netflix with very little fanfare. Yeah, look, nobody's talking about this one at all. And this is a father bringing up his baby girl as a single dad after the unexpected death of his wife. And worth noting, this comes by way of Paul White, who is probably best known as the director of American Pie. But he's also done a few films that are probably a bit more in line with this. So about a boy in good company. Uh, He's a reliable director. So I'm pretty keen to actually get this one a look because I think he actually gets to human relationships quite nicely in a lot of his films. And even the American Pie films, I mean, they are what they are. But there is definitely a sort of nice humanity that kind of runs through it all. Like they are, there's a lot of good interpersonal conversation and relationships that you actually find growing through that film. There's a reason they're so popular. And into baking pies as well. Oh, dude, please. I remember it well. The movie, not the pie. Um, <laughs> big screen. Big screen watch. <laughs> on other screens around Australia, on the big screen this time, an Aussie film called Buckley's Chance. This stars Bill Nye as the grandfather of a young boy who comes to his Western Australian homestead to uh, try to find a bit of happiness in his life, and they develop a very special bond along with a dingo that he rescues from a trap. So uh, good family entertainment in time for the school holidays and something called The Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife, which we've spoken at length about already. And for a movie we don't want to review, gee, we've sure talked a lot about it. So let's move on from that. Never heard of it. Hey, there's a couple of special films playing around the place this week at the Dendy Cinemas in Newtown, Canberra and Cooparoo. Uh, you've got With Nail and I playing, and there'll definitely be some very sort of drunken, wine-enthused crowds checking out that one. At the Astor in Melbourne, you've got Sexy Beast playing and Snatch. Uh, the Mercury Cinema in Adelaide, you've got The Chain Reaction, and that's not to be confused with Chain Reaction, the Keanu Reeves movie. And uh, look, can I just rave? I want to rave very quickly about The Chain Reaction. This is a 1980 Australian exploitation film starring Steve Bisley and Anna Maria Winchester. Um, it's kind of like The China Syndrome meets Mad Max. And um, if that doesn't sort of hook you up, you, you really should try and get along to the Mercury Cinema Wednesday, June the 30th at 6.30pm to see this terrific uh, bit of Aussie B-movie magic. Uh, rarely seen on the big screen, so worth checking it out. I'm confused why you had to mention that Steve Beasley was in it. You said that it was an Australian movie. There we go. Yeah. Hey, playing at Goma is a Miranda July retrospective, and that will open with, um, is it Madeline's Madeline? 
Oh, yeah, look, Madeline's Madeline is a beautiful coming of age. It's a musical, but it's a very contemporary musical, more like a, a film stage play in parts. Um, stars a wonderful central performance, and Miranda July is terrific. And she didn't direct it, though. This is a whole retrospective with some of her um, very off-kilter, early 2000s indie type of films. I'm a big fan. Generally, some of the stuff can go either way, but it opens July 2 and runs to July 11 at in Brisbane at the, how do you even say that, Quagoma? Oh, no, it's, it's just Goma, really. So it's the it's Queensland, um, whatever A stands for, and uh, then Gallery, Gallery of Modern, of Modern Art. Art. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Okay. Miranda July, like, I've never been as to find my way into her movies. Hey, but let's move on. This week in history, a whole bunch of interesting things, including the June 25th anniversary of Blade Runner. 1982, all those years ago, Blade Runner came out. Didn't really make a splash at the cinemas. It took a while to find of get its groove on but uh, unlike David Lean now the famous film director he did Bridge on the River Kwai Lawrence of Arabia on June 28 in 1930 he wed his first cousin what who's preparing these running sheets He's, I think it was you <laughs> David Lean on this on June 28 wed his first cousin and I put this one in here for you mate June 29 1940 go ahead uh, sure uh, and bear in mind Simon writes a lot of these run sheets and so this is why I get surprised when suddenly there's Polish TV series that I've never heard about before uh-huh. uh, yeah so anyway June 29 1940 in Batman comics mobsters have rubbed out a circus high wire team known as the Flying Graysons leaving their son Dick an orphan there you go yeah sure that's fictional obviously I mean that's sort of based on the comics that didn't happen in real life it is uh, like I don't think that Batman's based on a true story but I'm also not saying that it wasn't I'm very ignorant about history uh, something that's worth noting is that this was 1940 and I was thinking that this year actually marks the 80th anniversary of Robin as a character but maybe it was last year and I'm just a little bit out with my calendar but if you're interested in Batman and historical things like that there's actually some really cool hardcovers you can get at the moment which celebrate 80 years of characters like Robin, like Batman, like Superman, the Joker. I'm looking down my shelf here. The Flash, there's Green Lantern, Green Arrow. <laughs> but that's just these really cool hardcovers which basically take a comic story of their history from every decade leading up to it. So there's like about eight to 10 comics per collection. They cost about 40 bucks. But they're just like great snapshot of looking at how comics the story construction the art has changed over the years and also just the expectations that we have on these characters that we now see on the big screen but just how they evolved and where little elements of the characters we know them as now have come from over the past anyway they're pretty fun that sounds interesting i should yeah. probably read that because you're much further ahead on all things comic book than i am so that'd be good for me to catch up on yeah yeah uh, some birthdays, birthdays. As we speak, June 25, 1961, funny man Ricky Gervais was born in England. June 25, 1975, Linda Cardellini, who I love from Freaks and Geeks and most recently Dead to Me. Um, she was born as well. I love Linda Cardellini. Oh, she's great. Yeah, she's great. I like to think of her as Mad Men star, Linda Cardellini, or occasionally yeah, Scooby-Doo star. Scooby-Doo's Thelma. Yeah, she was great in that too. You want to keep going? Ah, uh, yeah. How about we do this? I've never heard of this guy before. Paul Thomas Anderson. What do you mean you've missed that guy? You're joking, aren't you? You're joking. He directed Boogie anyway, Nights. He's celebrating Magnol- his- oh my god. He directed Boogie Nights. He's Magnol- celebrating his birthday on June 26, nineteen seventy. And of course, he has directed several of my favourite movies of all time, including the aforementioned Boogie Nights, Magnolia. Oh god, he's pretty good. I'm very curious to see what his new film's going to be like because yeah. he's kind of going back to being slightly more contemporary than he's been the last few years. Were you on board or off board with The Master? That's a film that really divides people. 
look, here's the thing. I've only watched the once and I know if I went and watched it a second time, I'd enjoy it a lot more yeah. than I did that first time. That's exactly but yeah, right. I just haven't gone back to watch it. But the Phantom Thread was kind of like that as well. But I think I liked it quite a bit more the first time through. But I reckon I'd love it the second yeah, time I through. I totally agree. June 28, 1966, my man John Cusack from Stand By Me, The Sure Thing, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, he uh, was born 1966 on June 28, July 1. Dan Aykroyd, a little actor from Ghostbusters and the Blues Brothers, was born. And we should point out also on June 25, 1967, Australian film critic and podcaster Simon Foster was born, um, who has gone on to, has shows great promise for the future. I heard of him. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in there. Because you completely forgot it was my birthday, didn't you? You completely <laughs> well, I was forgot. I was next week. I, you know, I made a... I didn't forget. I knew it was on the horizon. I made a big deal out of it being your birthday last week just so I could stick it to you when you forgot mine this week. Simon, look behind you. I've organised a cake. <laughs> no, thank you, mate. I know deep down you were wishing me a happy birthday. Let's sign off so I can go and enjoy my birthday, please. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what date did you say your birthday was? The 25th? June 25. Okay. Yeah, I know. I'll keep that in mind for when June 25 rolls around next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. 54 <laughs> I turned this year. 54. Your old podcasting friend finally got got to the, the nearly the mid 50s. So anyway, we'll see how it goes. I'm Good losing grief. my mind. I didn't realize I was podcasting with someone who predates the Lost Ark. <laughs> hey, let's sign off. Yes, let's sign off. Folks, thank you very much for listening to Screen Watching. <laughs> I'm podcast jerk Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. Start your day with my free newsletter, Always Be Watching at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Fridays, I do have the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that week. I'm Simon Foster. I uh, run a little website called ScreenSpace, screen-space.net, where I rant regularly about all things cinema. I'm on Twitter at SimonRFoster1. Uh, do go and visit the Screen Watching Facebook page at Screen Watching Podcast. There's always a steady stream of screen news from around the world. Plus, we're revving things up over at my um, Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival. Just Google those words and you'll find out lots about what I do when I'm not doing this. Fantastic. And of course, please follow Screen Watching in your favourite podcast app. Load it up now, hit the follow button, and the podcast will just start flowing in. Simon Foster, we've got to get out of here. You've got birthdays to celebrate. I've got birthdays to forget about. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on. <laughs> all right, I've got to go. I've got a whole bunch of people out here who remembered my birthday. So all the best, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs> See ya.